Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. James Sweeney joins us now with Credit Suisse. Mr. Sweeney has been absolutely extraordinary on pushing back against the fears of deflation. Let's get to that in a minute, James Sweeney. Right now, the Fed acts. Why did they have to act now? Give us the why of this moment for Chairman Powell. Well, so the light switch of the economy has been turned off to fight the virus. And what that means is economic activity is low. We knew these claims numbers, these employment numbers were going to be terrible. But what the job of policymakers is at a time like this is to ensure that the payments flow through the economy continues, even if economic activity is low. And using the tools of war finance, money printing, debt expansion, etc., it is possible to disassociate that payments flow from actual activity for a little while. This is what we do in wars. But the risk here is missed payments, missed obligations, balance sheet damage, all of that. But, you know, if, if you can get this payments problem right by getting cash and liquidity to businesses, households, and local governments, then the best case scenario is that, you know, one day we'll be looking back and we will see this big blip in the data in Q2 2020. And we will say, wow, it looks like they turned the economy off a little while to fight the virus. And then they turned it back on again. So that's the question. The question is not how deep is the shutdown. The question is how much persistent damage is done. And that damage is all about payments and balance sheets. And I think the kinds of facilities that they're announcing are precisely what you need in order to ensure that as many of those payments and debt obligations and fixed costs in the short term are are met. James, let's talk about what's been announced this morning. It might be easier just for me to ask you what they're not buying, considering how much they are buying, but let's reflect on what they are buying. What have they announced this morning that's additional to what was already announced previously, just in terms of the securities that were eligible for the Federal Reserve to purchase? Sure. I, I, well, the big news, I think, is the municipal, um, the municipal purchases. Uh, that's what's being sized up. That's where the hole was in the CARES Act. Uh, there were some in the CARES Act, but it wasn't that big. So saying that they can directly purchase munis is, is important, or saying that they will is, is important. Um, I mean, I, I think you know, the central bank has three basic tools, right? You're buying assets in exchange for money. You are manipulating interest rates, uh, moving interest rates around. But the third is, is you have a menu of collateral which you're allowed to buy. And in a crisis, they fiddle with that menu. They expand their, their list of things that they will accept in exchange for cash. So what we have now is investment-grade bonds, municipal bonds, asset-backed securities, um, and even some, some small business type loans uh, through the discount window and through, however, the ultimate operations of this Main Street lending facility work, this is all very important. Again, you are, you are using the most aggressive tools that you have in order to keep the money flowing in, in all the places where it needs to flow. Um, the, in the first steps of, of the Fed was really addressing the financial and the banking payments issue when we had that funding market problem weeks back. They've done a great job on that. Um, you know, the household sector has had some of their payments met 
with the extended unemployment insurance and the $1,200 checks. But I think, you know, the holes were really in the business sector and in uh, the, the local and state governments. And, and I, I think what they're doing now is they're addressing those holes, which is very good news. James, let's talk about credit ratings. For quite a while, the ECB has been buying corporate debt, investment grade, sovereigns, as we all know, investment grade. For the Federal Reserve, is there anything in the announcement this morning that suggests they are willing to go outside of investment grade for any particular securities? Well, I haven't seen anything specific on that, that they're going to be buying actual credit securities below investment grade. Um, but I, I think this Main Street lending facility, I mean, you're, you're basically financing loans to small businesses. I mean, credit uh, agencies are not necessarily going to be rating um, those loans, but effectively a loan to a, to a small business is going to be a speculative grade loan most of the time. Um, you know, that gets swallowed up in the diversification inherent in a bank's balance sheet. But through a discount window operation where those loans are collateral to the Fed, no, you're, you're really doing that. But I, I think bailing out the high yield market or the leveraged loan market uh, is something they haven't done. It's a different kind of credit risk. And I'm, I'm not sure that, uh, that they want to do that. James, I'm struck by the fact that these are unprecedented steps, that the Fed is taking on unprecedented power, even going beyond what was done in 2008 and 2009. And I'm wondering how it moves away from this. I mean, basically, Congress is not necessarily getting its act together to pass the required, uh, by many accounts, the required fiscal packages to address this. So the Fed is stepping in. What does this mean for the Fed's political future? Well, I I would not agree that the Fed is taking unprecedented steps. Um, I mean, the Fed has taken corporate risk onto its balance sheet before, um, especially through the Maiden Lane facilities in, in 2008. Uh, municipal bonds, the Fed has had the ability to purchase in the past. And in fact, in the, in the early years of the Fed, that was, uh, that was routinely done. Asset-backed securities were bought in the, in the 2008 crisis as well. Um, and the Main Street lending facility, again, we don't have all the details, but the discount window has long been used and the collateral for that is uh, is small business loans. So what the Fed is doing is is you're you're, yeah. you're on emergency footing. You're on emergency footing. The, the Fed is working for the the cause, and the Treasury is working for yeah. the cause. And the cause is to keep the payments flowing so that you're limiting bankruptcies, defaults, and failed businesses during yeah. this period where the economy is not operating as as usual. James Sweeney, one final question to your claim on saying don't fear deflation. Give us an update on this pandemic, on service sector, inflation declines. Are, should we be worried about inflation down the road or disinflation? Or finally, can I actually worry about true deflation? Well, I, I think we should worry about the unanchoring of the very stable inflation that we've had for many years. Um, and as I always point out, we've had 1.7% core inflation on average since 1995. If you look at any longer term history, we've had ridiculously low volatility of inflation. And perhaps, you know, the declines in interest rates and, uh, and the tracking of neutral rates lower ha- has helped to do that. But I think with a shock like this, you have to ask mm-hmm. whether inflation is going to be unanchored. In the first moment, we're going to have very high unemployment. Uh, we're going to have weak growth, and we're going to have an oscillation down in inflation driven by a strong dollar, falling commodity prices, right. etc. Yeah. Next year, it depends on the rebound. It depends on the path of stimulus going forward. But could we have a sharp oscillation up? I think we can. And I, I do worry 
about those oscillations and in inflation, those peaks and troughs yeah. both being farther from 1.7 yeah. than before. Here's valuable, and particularly at this moment, James Sweeney, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. Through this pandemic, it may be a struggle for the World Bank and for the International Monetary Fund to speak, to find a message to assist so many of the countries that are out there. For the IMF, 189 countries. It is not a spring meetings. The spring meetings are canceled, but nevertheless, the IMF moves forward with virtual spring meetings and the messaging of what they will do to assist so many troubled countries in this crisis. We speak this morning for Bloomberg with Kristalina Yorgeva, the managing director of the International Monetary Fund. Managing director, thank you so much for joining Bloomberg this morning. What I find so extraordinary at this moment is the urgency and original, original uh, uh, tone of what the IMS must convey. What is the message you would like to convey? Well, this is a crisis like no other. It is uh, the worst we have seen since the Great Depression, and it requires extraordinary action by everyone, including by international organizations like the IMF. Our message is twofold. One, we must fight the virus and protect people. It is first and foremost a human tragedy due to that health crisis. So governments ought to do everything they can to support health workers and health systems. So the faster we beat the virus, the faster a recovery can begin. And two, because it is such a gigantic, dramatic development, a virtual standstill of the world economy, it requires massive, well-targeted measures. And so we see governments stepping up globally, up to that moment, $8 trillion of fiscal stimulus and central banks, including the Fed here, <clears throat> doing a heroic job. <coughs> that has to continue. But we need to remember there are countries that don't have these capabilities. And for that, the IMF, the World Bank, we ought to step up, and we do. We have a trillion dollars <clears throat> capacity all of it is at the disposal of our members, and we are moving very rapidly, responding to extraordinary flow of requests. Over 90 mm. countries, 9-0, never in the history of the IMF, never ever we have faced such right. a demand, and we are very fast, very fast to act. So, health first, on that basis, revive the economy. Dr. Gorgieva, what is so important here, and you mentioned this in your opening comments an hour ago, you quoted the economist from the 19th century, Victor Hugo, and you talked about the fraternity of strangers. Your strangers are the G20 leaders, and you and them have to come together to find a new vehicle or an increased vehicle in the SDR, the special drawing rights. What do you need from the G20 to assist you with more funding under SDR? And specifically, what do you need from America? 
what I, I have to recognize is the uh, tremendous stepping up of our membership, uh, including the United States, by making it possible to have in a timely manner the $1 trillion I spoke about. As part of the $2 trillion uh, stimulus package, there was a component supporting the uh, uh, NAPS. This is the authority of the IMF to borrow that boosts our resources. <coughs> so our first demand is indeed make sure that we have the resources, the $1 trillion I, I spoke about, available, and now, now <coughs> we do. When we look into the future, if this crisis continues for a longer period of time, and this is the uncertainty that we are wrestling with, or if there is a second wave of the epidemic, uh, which epidemiologists are saying is not completely out of question, then we need to look into further beefing up the uh, resources of uh, uh, the International Monetary Fund. And uh, uh, to explain to the, uh, to the viewers, the SDRs uh, is a fast way to provide liquidity to all countries. Uh, it was done after the uh, uh, shock that came in 2008. In 2009, there was a boost of 250 billion SDRs that were spread among the membership to improve the liquidity position. Why is this uh, valuable? Because many emerging markets find themselves hit by a health crisis, by a standstill in their own economies, and on top of it, capital outflow, capital flying to safety. Some $100 billion have left emerging markets. That makes the liquidity position of these countries uh, more challenging. And at that moment, uh, a uh, emission of SDRs can provide a much-needed liquidity boost. Managing Director, it is a critical day this Thursday for OPEC, OPEC Plus, for Russia, for Washington. I would suggest there's no other organization better suited to triangulate the oil economics across beleaguered nations. Let us speak specifically about Nigeria. I know you're frantically working to aid Nigeria with assistance here given the collapse in oil. Comment on what you would like to see from Mr. Putin from the royal family of Saudi Arabia and from President Trump? Well, what we have seen is a collapse of commodity prices, including oil price going down, dramatically hitting uh, uh, commodity exporters, oil exporters, a country like Nigeria. Uh, right now, we are working expeditiously to provide emergency financing to, to Nigeria to, to help the country steer through this very difficult time. Uh, having less uncertainty in this moment of time, of course helps because the most dramatic aspect of this crisis is the high degree of uncertainty. Uh, so anything that can be done to provide <coughs> more predictability in commodity markets, in the oil markets, is going to be, of course, very, very helpful. Uh, we do need all of us to come uh, together uh, we are in a uncharted, in a uncharted waters as, as world community, and we can only succeed if we collaborate and think of this uh, common interest of moving through uncertainty with 
uh, as much determination and collective action as possible. One more country, if I could mention, there's so many under this crisis managing director to speak of. This morning early, I was speaking with our Istanbul office, Bloomberg News in Istanbul, about the unique position that Mr. Erdogan has, has been in. As you know, he has been most, most negative about your institution. How will you reach out and assist a beleaguered Turkey? Well, we actually have a, a very constructive engagement with uh, the whole membership, including uh, with uh, Turkey. Uh, we have been uh, consulting all our members in this crisis on what are the policy actions uh, that can help steer <clears throat> the economies uh, through this very difficult uh, time. And what I can say is that uh, uh, in this uh, uh, virtual spring meeting that is coming uh, uh, just next week, uh, we will continue this constructive engagement with the uh, membership, including with uh, Turkey. We are there for all our members. Our John Farrell, I know later today, will speak with Dr. El Arian. And of course, if I think of the game theory of Mohammed El Arian and frankly, many other economists, including your wonderful Gita Gopanath, it's about the unknown unknowns. Managing Director, what is the unknown unknown for you right now? How would the world look like when we come to the other side of this crisis? We know there will be structural shifts. We know there would be implications of the actions we take today. We don't quite know how exactly the economy would look like, how people would behave, and what would be the scarring impact of this crisis. To be prepared for this unknown, what we do at the fund is to work relentlessly on understanding at a global level and that at a national level what is happening, how the uh, uh, economies are shaping up. Uh, many people are asking, how is this going to look like? Which letter of the alphabet you need to pick up to describe this crisis. Uh, and what I would say is that we may be running out of letters. It would be quite different from one country to another. And the, in the end, we may be faced with more like a reversed check mark. So that unknown of how we are going <clears throat> to come when we come to the other side, that we know we, mm -hmm. will, be, we will be in recovery. There will be a rebound uh, of the economy. But how would the economy look like structurally, uh, and what would be the long-lasting impact on behaviors? Would there be uh, unimaginable benefits because we shift towards uh, a smaller footprint of the way we function that benefits our action on climate change? Uh, this would be, to my mind, the big question. What are the risks? that are coming out of this crisis? What are the opportunities that are coming out of this crisis? And how to make sure that we stay together as a world so we can manage down the risks and utilize the opportunities? 
Well, I'm so sorry, Managing Director, not to visit in Washington for your spring meetings, but thank you for joining us for this unique interview worldwide on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television. Oil is front and center, and of course, there is the microeconomics of oil, the supply dynamics, the demand dynamics, and it buttresses up now in this collapse with the geopolitics, and there is no one more definitive on this than the gentleman from Princeton, now holding court as head of commodities for a small bank named Citigroup. His name is Edward Morse. Dr. Morse, wonderful to have you with us uh, today. To begin this discussion, I know John and Lisa really want to jump in here with the immediacy, uh, the moment that we are in. What does the president want to accomplish today? The president wants to accomplish a incredible cooperation venture between um, the U.S. and some other countries that have no top-down control over the production of oil and gas, uh, and to coordinate what's going on in these countries with, uh, uh, with the countries that, that do have that top-down control uh, to try to put a floor on the prices and to end the pain that's affecting producing countries uh, and producers around the world. Ed, what does the United States do if OPEC Plus doesn't agree a deal today? Well, the, the question is whether the president has any kind of action uh, ability to, to deal with the problem. And the fact of the matter is he does. The question is whether he'll, he'll use it. So he certainly uh, can protect the U.S. at the border. He can put on duties or quotas on imports from selected countries. Uh, and those would include the ones that uh, uh, particularly the GCC countries. Uh, he can do other things related to the bilateral relationships with, with these countries. So uh, I, I say that's what's induced everybody to come to the table. The, the, this is soft power at work. Odd for this president to be using soft power, but uh, he has and it's actually worked. Um, there's a limited number of things that can be done domestically. Um, he's uh, laid out the, the roadmap on that. Uh, certainly, they're going ahead with a SPR purchase, that's a purchase of oil for our strategic stockpile. Um, it's got 77 million barrels of storage space for, that it's being earmarked for uh, companies under distress. Uh, they've worked hard at figuring out a way to do this without a budgetary allocation from Congress. Uh, they have uh, ability to control production on federal lands and in federal waters, but uh, it's unlikely gonna, that he'll, he will do that kind of action uh, without uh, OPEC doing something on its own. So, Ed, there's a question as far as tariffs go. My knee-jerk reaction was that would do nothing, considering the fact that oil consumption in the U.S. has fallen to the lowest in at least 30 years. Do you think that it could potentially have more of an impact on propping up prices? Well, it could at this very moment. Saudi uh, Arabian exports to the U.S. have been uh, lower because of the uh, uh, cheaper uh, medium-sour crudes that are available in the U.S. Uh, Gulf Coast market or from Canada. Uh, but there's an armada of Saudi ships coming to the U.S., um, uh, uh, double the amount of VLCCs as a year ago, uh, order of magnitude a million barrels a day. Those could be slapped with uh, quotas uh, on, uh, while the, that oil is en route or duties when the, when, the, when the material comes to the U.S. And yes, those duties can make the economics of those cargoes uh, you know, negative. 
Ed, let's quickly do a little bit of a clinic for our listeners, shall we? Because many of them typically would be commuting perhaps to Wall Street to work in finance. Today, many of them are in the office working from home. So if you're listening to this program and you have access to a Bloomberg terminal, load up CL1, which is WTI crude, and then whack in CT. Just type in CT, which is the contract table, and smash the enter key, smash the go key. And what will load up, Ed, as you know, is a long list of all the contracts. May 20, June 20, July 20, August 20, all the way out to 21, 22, 23, 24, etc., etc. And what you see at the front end is a really depressed price. May 20, at the moment, $25.90. And over each month, it gradually rises by several dollars. And at the steepness of that curve at the front end, walk us all through what that captures at the moment, the story that that tells. The story that tells is that there's too much oil available in the marketplace with no place to put it, and the places to put it are getting more and more expensive. So um, that reflects the costs of storing this oversupply of oil, and that cost structure is here for a very long time. It means if you can find the space, it could be very profitable, but finding the space is at a very dear premium. So uh, that's the best example of where this market is oversupplied. I'd say there's one other thing that you can give the tickers on, and that is the differential between uh, that financially traded crude oil, WTI, settled on the uh, CME uh, 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 physically at Cushing, Oklahoma, but there are other crude oils that, that you can look at as a differential to WTI, and you'll see that they are really suffering. Uh, you could do this with Brent as well on the right ticker. So if you look at Canadian crudes, um, you had WTI pricing close to 30, but not quite there yet. Canadian crudes are uh, at a 16, 17, 18 dollar negative differential to WTI. That puts that those prices in the uh, in the teens or in the single digit level. You think of the cost of moving Canadian crude to the U.S. That's another six dollars. You think about the cost of the wellhead of just producing it. That's another eight, yeah. twelve dollars, and all of that is negative in terms of what the producer is getting. So uh, that's the other thing that's going on. There's a physical market that you can look at in addition to the financial market. The financial market has been tightening up because of what's going on in uh, OPEC and expectations about it. But the physical market, the financial market is tightening up and the physical market is really, really soft. Thank you so much, Ed Morris. Greatly, Thanks, Ed. greatly appreciate it this morning. Just very timely. And of course, <laughs> folks, we'll be covering this all through the day as well. There's so much going on today, but we can't forget this pandemic. And what we've really tried to do here at Bloomberg Surveillance is to touch upon true experts in the field. Yesterday, we spoke with a, an emergency room expert from the Johns Hopkins University. And now, Jason Farley. Uh, Dr. Farley is head of nursing at Johns Hopkins School of Nursing. Of course, all of this tied into the Bloomberg School of Public Health, of which he is a degree holder as well. We should mention that Mr. Bloomberg is the founder of Bloomberg LP and a great philanthropist to his engineering school at Johns Hopkins. Uh, but I should point out this was an extraordinary interview. Here is Jason Farley on the state of nursing. There's no question that there has been a delay in receiving funding, uh, receiving PPE, uh, we are starting to see uh, improvements uh, in, in that availability, but it's far too, too long and, and too late. We've seen healthcare workers around the world 
uh, who have succumbed uh, to this virus and, and been infected. Not only does that you know, increase the morbidity and mortality within their own family, but it also takes them out of the health workforce, which has a ripple effect throughout the system. Why can't the administrations of these hospitals go to the politicians and just say to them, look, here's a video, as I saw yesterday, of eight ambulances outside Mount Sinai at 101st Street in Manhattan. Why can't the leadership of these hospitals explain to the politicians how unsafe this moment is? Well, I, I think the, the leadership's doing its best to try to that explanation. It's clearly all over the media, all over social media. So I don't think it's, a, it's an issue of uh, lack of will, nor do I think it's an issue of lack of understanding. I, what I think is, is it's a lack of issue of preparedness. And so specifically what I mean by that is you can't um, when there is no stockpile, when there is no substantial availability to immediately deploy to these hospitals, and you have an entire health system in a, in a state uh, across every state of the country requesting this at the same time, there's just uh, a supply and demand issue. And so ultimately, mm -hmm. you know, all of this has been requested. It's been requested before the curve started rising in these locations, and yet there was just no supply to offer to the demand. Dr. Farley, Speaker Pelosi and others, Republican and Democrat, are speaking about almost wartime pay for our medical professionals. Why are we battling about this? Why are we having a debate about the low payedness that everybody agrees we see in geriatric nursing, that we see in some of the entry-level positions in the hospitals? Why are we arguing about combat pay for nurses and doctors? I think it's a great question, and first and foremost, I want to let your viewers and listeners know that it's not the healthcare workforce who's arguing about this, right? This is the politicians. So um, we're do we're in there. We're doing our job. We're 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 dedicated as we were before this pandemic began. And so I, I just want the listener to know that that's not something that the health workforce is demanding. Um, that is something that we don't have time to demand. So when we think about these conversations, it is. Um, you know, it is something that's happening in, for people who are, are safe and, and not currently uh, in harm's way. That said, um, when we think about, uh, you know, wartime level uh, rhetoric, I think it is. This is a war zone against the virus, a different type of enemy. Um, and these healthcare workers are putting themselves on the line. And I've heard everything from loan forgiveness as, as a type of remuneration to increased pay, um, and yet um, no one seems to have a clear guidance on exactly what that right. means. And, and by the way, healthcare workforce isn't sitting there waiting for, for, for that to come through. We're just doing our job. Dr. Farley, I want you to comment on what you observe in, in uh, intensive care units and in the general hospital now about biphasic illness, of how a virus can occur and the patients can be very sick and then they get better, they do better, and then there's a resounding deterioration. From your experience and what you're learning nationwide, can you suggest that the COVID virus has a second life or so? Are you observing that uh, clinically in hospitals? Well, we've definitely seen cases of, of patients who seem to be recovering and then have an acute decline. And so the, the key question is, 
physiologically what is happening. And so right now there's a, a lot of hypotheses uh, around what that is. Clearly, it, it, we have to remember that it is not the virus itself that's causing the issue. It's our, our immune system's response to it. So our immune system can begin a response. It can help to reduce the viral replication. And then once the viral replication is starting to decline, the virus has mechanisms to try to evade that immune response and then ultimately begins to overwhelm the immune response. And so the immune system begins to really ramp itself up. And so what you're seeing with this acute respiratory distress is basically patients beginning to have fluid develop in their lungs with not only pneumonia, but also just frank fluid from all the immune response that occurs to the virus itself. And so that second wave of just really acute deterioration is a result of our bodies trying to fight back against this virus. Jason Farley with the Johns Hopkins University School of Nursing, just an extraordinary set mm-hmm. of interviews we have had uh, uh, over the last uh, four or five days, I should say, with people directly involved and fighting this pandemic. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.